Welcome to Being Human. This week, my guest is Mark Lines, the co-creator of Disciplined Agile Delivery, Dad, uh, and co-author of four books on, on the topic. Um, as a practicing Agile coach, and that being one of the, the hats I wear, I often see it referenced, and I'm delighted to have a chance to, to take a dive in, into the approach. So welcome, Mark. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, speaking from Pune, India, as I, uh, I'm doing a workshop here, and then I'm off to uh, Bangalore for Agile India. Uh, so sitting holed up in a hotel room, hopefully the Wi-Fi uh, holds up, and we'll, we'll see how this goes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Maybe let's start with, with the history of Disciplined Agile Delivery. Could you take us back to where it started? Yeah, sure. I mean, the roots go back to uh, around 2006, um, where Scott was um, sort of formulating some of his ideas about what does Agile look like in an enterprise. Flash ahead uh, a few years to when he joined IBM and became the worldwide lead for IBM of Agile and Lean. And it was during that time he decided to formalize it. Um, how do you Again, how do you deal with Agile in the large and call it Disciplined Agile Delivery? And while he was at IBM, um, he and I had known each other for some time. He asked for my input and feedback on it. And collectively, uh, we, it gelled and we wrote our first, first book that came out in 2012. So that's really where it officially uh, came out. And subsequently, Scott left IBM and we um, started a consulting firm. And uh, as I say, the rest is history. It's, it's now being used around the world uh, at huge companies and small companies. You can use Discipline Agile in the large. For uh, As an example, uh, Barclays has over a 1,000 teams around the world uh, using Discipline Agile. In fact, one of the reasons I've, I was in Pune before was to help a local Barclays office with implementation of Discipline Agile. So it's being used in really big companies, but it's also being used in small companies. If you have a team of four people doing Scrum, that is a subset of what Discipline Agile is. So technically, you're using that. You can use it for big. You can use it for small. And that's the first thing I want to say about Discipline Agile is that it often gets lumped in with scaling frameworks like uh, Less, um, Safe, of course. And you know, Gartner talks about us and Less and Safe and Spotify as you know, the four largest uh, scaling frameworks, but technically that's not what we are. Uh, SAFE exists as a pattern for doing software development in the large, 100 plus developers. That is not our reason for living. We're, we're actually um, starting to describe ourselves as a toolkit, a toolkit of strategies that you can use in a small scrum team, or you can use in a collection of dozens of teams. Um, so it's a toolkit, a toolkit of, of great ideas. It's a hybrid of existing methods. Okay. And, and what were the initial, so, so I get it, Scott Ambler, your co-creator, started to develop this right in IBM. And what were the drivers for, for developing this body of work, you know, versus what you, I guess was pre-existing and you, you could have used from elsewhere? Yeah. So it's a great question. You know, um, Scrum is awesome, you know, but, but what Scrum is described, its official body of knowledge, if you will, is the Scrum Guide. And the Scrum Guide is 19 pages long, 2017. In fact, if you take away the cover, the table of contents, and the acknowledgments, it's actually 16 pages. And it, but it's 16 pages of awesomeness. But the fact is, what we do 
is far more complex than what you can describe in 16 pages. So what people do is they reach out to things like Extreme Programming, XP, for some ideas on technical practices. They reach out to some of the work that Scott has done in the past, maybe on agile data or agile modeling. Um, they search for governance ideas. How do you do agile uh, governance with agile? And they try to figure it out themselves. And sometimes they get it right, but many times they really don't. And so what our toolkit does is really the only toolkit out there where we've gone out and we've pulled together these ideas from, you know, literally dozens of, of methods and frameworks and put them into a cohesive whole. So, um, whether you, you know, even if you're doing SAFE, SAFE teaches us we do Scrum and XP down at the team level. But even down there, you're going to need to make decisions in the small of, uh, maybe I want to supplement my user stories with other techniques. Well, what are my options? Well, you could do story mapping from Jeff Patton. You could do some UML diagrams. You could do some business process modeling. Uh, many different ideas. And many people don't even know what, you could use something called personas. Many people don't understand what their options are. So they, you know, fail fast and they struggle. And what we would suggest to you is rather than failing fast, which is, which is a good thing, but it can be expensive and time-consuming, why not reach out to a set of proven strategies? And what we do is say, in these situations, personas is a good idea. In these situations, story mapping is a good idea. And then you can pull proven techniques that make sense for your context. So okay. it helps you. It gives you guidance for adapting your Agile to the unique situation that you find yourself in. And that's one of your principles, right? Cho choice is good. Choice is good and context counts. Um, two of the principles. Uh, it's good to have choice. You know, Scrum is a one, what we call one life cycle, one, one, one type of life cycle where you have sprints or what some people call iterations. You batch up work every couple of weeks and then you deliver an increment of that work. That's great, but you know, there are other approaches. There's a lean approach where I pull work as I have capacity to do it, lean Kanban. And then there's continuous delivery where I, I, I pull and I I build, then I deliver, a pull, I build, then I deliver. So you have different approaches, and as you said, choice is good. And in some situations, Scrum is awesome, but you know what? In some situations, it's actually not a good idea. There are better choices. So we, we're about choice, we're about context. We're not purist. Another one of our principles is prag pragmatism. So, uh, I mean, what's not to like about those things, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> now... We had Dave Snowden on the show and, you know, complexity to thinker. And he, he might argue that when we're, when we're dealing with, with complexity, there, re there really is no best practice. Yes. So there's only emergent practice. So can we really say that there's a, a proven technique? Uh, and can we really know until, until we try it? No, you, and you're absolutely right. In fact, we never uh, in this book, uh, in, our, in our books, talk about best practices. In fact, we make it very clear that there are no best practices. There are good ideas and what Dave calls uh, fit for context um, practices. So it's not best practices, it's, it's ones that fit the particular context. And in fact, um, you know, Scott has been to one of Dave's retreats. We get along very well. Uh, with Dave Snowden because he understands you need to adapt for the situation you find yourself in. Context counts and we are dealing with complex adaptive systems. So you can't, there is no silver bullets, there's no best practices. Unfortunately, people are looking for that. They want mm -hmm. the recipe. I'm starting to talk about in my talks, I talk about ingredients and recipes. And, and what that is, it's a, it's a set of ingredients where Scrum is, you, know, you look in the pantry and there's not a lot of ingredients there. 
like, but they're good. I mean, but so you can make great macaroni and cheese, but after a while you get a little sick of the macaroni and cheese and maybe you want to make some more elaborate recipes, uh, but you don't know what your ingredients are. And so we're a collection of ingredients so that you can become a better chef. <laughs> That's kind of the way I'm talking about it right now. And, uh, yeah. you know, so I, I, I have to take the opportunity to put a plug in for our latest okay, book. Okay, correct. <laughs> Choose Your Wow. And it's one of the reasons you know, we're in India is to promote the new book. We're extremely proud of it. It, it replaces our first book, which was 2012. And you can see it's a big, thick book. And, and, and it's full of tables and strategies for requirements, architecture, testing, planning, governance, you know, all, all the things that you typically encounter in the enterprise. And it's, it, there's no way to dumb it down. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's hard stuff. And it, it, we would consider this our, our body of knowledge. And, it, you know, it's, it's based on, uh, I mean, Scott and I have been doing Agile for literally 25 years. So it's pulling together that knowledge, not just ours. Like we, we pull out, we, we go into to Dave Snowden's work. In fact, we talk about Kneffin. In, in the book, um, we go to, to Jeff Patton and we don't attempt to describe all those techniques in our book, but what we do is highlight what they are, what kind of context they might be, might be a good idea for you. And then you can, and then references. So you can say, you say story mapping, Ooh, that sounds like a great idea for us to help us organize our stories and flush them out and to put them into different releases. Um, we're not going to tell you how to do all that. We'll tell you what it is and where it might work. And then you would go off and either buy Jeff's book or, you know, go online and learn more, more about story mapping. So the, we see it as kind of a reference. Like it's, it, it's a big book and it's, you know, it's, it doesn't read like the Phoenix project, like a nice novel, a nice beach read, <laughs> but, but it's full of tables and goal diagrams and things. But we see people referencing it in retrospectives. Let's say that there, I, I did a little video that says, the team is in a retrospective and they're unhappy because the business has said, gee, what you guys delivered doesn't really match the way we do our work. It seems like you don't even understand us as business people, as users. So the team is like, oh, gee, we kind of let the business down. What can we do differently? So they turn the book and they go to requirements modeling and they discover something called personas. Oh, what are they about? Well, they can help us understand our stakeholders as people, as real people so that we can empathize with them and maybe build a better uh, user experience for them. So they go, oh, let's try building, let's try using personas. Then they take the book and they put it back up on the shelf and they try it and maybe that helps them to get better. And this is the thing is that um, not everybody is a process nerd like me and Scott, <laughs> right? We've read the, the, the 60 books. Um, you don't have to, <laughs> right? It's organized very nicely into goals so you can quickly find uh, guidance in an area which, as I said, testing requirements, architecture, governance, whatever it is, quickly find it, look at your options, look at the context of where one works versus another, and then use it as an, a, a change experiment. And, and just try that to see if we can get better. But one of the, the other principles that we have, we talk about in Discipline Agile is, is be awesome. So this, this helps you be more awesome. You'll make better decisions because you'll learn things you didn't even, weren't even aware of before. And we like to say better decisions lead to better outcomes. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I suppose one of the, one of my reflections on one of the problems with you know, implementation quote of say scrum is people can become very dogmatic. And it becomes a sort of methodology. Well, when you're not doing Scrum or you're not doing Scrum properly or 
you don't get agile. So, you know, this, this is a language often that I find myself in organizations dealing with. And it sounds to me like it, it's less likely that people are going to become dogmatic around dad and what should be done. Um, so is that true? And if it's not, have you seen, have you seen cases where dad becomes kind of evangelized and sort of weaponized as it shouldn't. It, sh- it absolutely shouldn't because that is completely a- against what we are. We're, we're, we're not prescriptive. We're like, think of the, the set of ingredients, right? So that you can use a recipe that makes sense for you. Um, and in, you're absolutely right is that, that many of the mainstream agile methods, methods and frameworks are quite prescriptive. And this doesn't necessarily um, mean it's a bad thing. As an example, Scrum is prescriptive. It says that we need to have a daily meeting, a stand-up meeting, and um, we need to have a demo at the end, and we need to have retrospectives. Those are the ceremonies, and that's prescription. Now, are those a good things? Well, yeah, sure. They're good things in, in certain contexts. If you've got a new Agile team that's trying to understand the Agile mindset, um, these can be forcing mechanisms to get people together once a day in the morning to plan out their day. Uh, having a retrospective is a forcing mechanism to get people to sit down and have a chat about how we did and how, reflect on how we can get better. Um, so that's awesome. It's part of the awesomeness of Scrum. But you know what? It is prescriptive. And in our second book, in our intro book, we talk about, we have a fictional case study that describes what we see over and over and over again in organizations where you have Scrum teams. And after a while, you know, they've been doing Scrum for a couple of years. And they go to have a retrospective at the end of their sprint and they start to say to themselves, why are we doing this every two weeks? We're like in sprint 104. Um, what revolutionary process improvement are we going to come up with that we didn't come up in the, with in the first 103 sprints, right? Um, but gee, God, God help you if, you if you don't do a retrospective because then you're doing this thing called scrum butt. We do Scrum, but we don't do retrospectives anymore. And now you're ostracized by the Scrum community and you're thrown out of the religion as being a heretic because you don't do retrospectives anymore. <laughs> and we think this is kind of silly. Uh, and, and because this is what we see with a typical team that is on its journey to high performance is that they start to lean up the process. And because there is process waste in Scrum, I'm sorry to say that, but there is the process waste. And, you know, lean attempts to, to eliminate waste. And they might, a good high-performance team that sits around a table every day, they do pairing every day, um, why do they need to stand up for 15 minutes every morning to talk about what they did yesterday when they were working with each other all day long? They know what they did, right? So they start to say, I don't know if we need this. Can we get that 15 minutes back? Why don't we just get together first thing in the morning to say, any blockers? Are we good? No? Then let's get back to work. That's what a lean team will do. And at the same time with the retrospective, imagine you're four days into a sprint and the team does think of something, you know what, let's stop doing that and start doing this. Let's try that because I think that would make things a little bit better. And then Scrum Master goes, no, 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 let's have a meeting to talk about how we can get better. Like I'm kind of making a joke about this. I mean, a lean team would say, why do we need that hour? We just identified an improvement. Let's do it immediately. Why do we wait to a formal ceremony at the end of the sprint? You see what I'm saying? So my point is, is that we're absolutely not prescriptive. We, we encourage people on their journey to high performance to not be what, I don't know if you've heard of a gentleman named Ivar Jakobsen, 
but he's, he's one of my mentors. And Ivar, is, he's one of the creators of the Unified Modeling Language, UML. He created right. use cases. Um, he was uh, part of the Rational Unified process back in the day, which, by the way, that's where my background is. I used to work for Rational Software. Um, Ivar also um, is of the same mindset as Scott and I and Dave Snowden. And, and what, what Ivar says is, we need to get out of the methods prison because it, it seems like we get locked into a method right. and we're in that prison and you can't get out. Cause as I said, if you try to do anything that deviates from what you've been told to do, then you're thrown out of the community. <laughs> um, it, and so that's our, that in fact, I've been quoting Ivar is that dad helps you get out of the methods prison and helps you to evolve uh, a flavor of agile that makes sense for you. Right. Back to being awesome, Mark. Okay. And that's, <laughs> so you, you talked about but one of the ways that people can, you, dad and, and I, enables people to be, to be awesome is it gives you choice. It gives you these, these techniques or these ideas that have worked in other contexts that might work for you. So it, so it broadens potentially the choice for team. Um, but I'll take a, a quote here. People and the way they interact with each other um, is one of the primary determinants of, of success for a solution delivery project. Mm-hmm. So that's part of that. So people and the way they interact with each other. So that's slightly different from having ideas and tools. But what do you, can you expand on that? You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, increasingly, um, I know per, my personal learning journey over the years, I'm, um, I'm really all about that principle about people being awesome because happy people, motivated people, uh, are more productive and they produce better quality and they, another one of our principles, they delight the stakeholders, they delight customers. Uh, so imp- being awesome is very related to what I would call joy. So, uh, you know, I always say in, in my workshops that, um, and, and I also want to talk about um, what, what, what discipline agile is in the large, like what, this book is about discipline agile delivery, which is, how to build high performance, awesome delivery teams. But we, you may, when you go to, you know, discipline-agile.com, which is our, our website, um, you see that we talk about discipline agile without discipline agile delivery. Discipline, di- discipline agile delivery is the delivery done by teams. Discipline agile in the large though means that you need to make the whole organization agile. It's not just about delivery teams. This is where so many companies fail and you don't have joy. You don't have awesomeness because the PMOs and the enterprise architecture groups and the data groups and the release management groups and other governance bodies make everybody miserable (laughs) because there's a misunderstanding between the enterprise authorities and the new way of working. Like choose your wow, choose your way of working. The new way of working in the teams. So our message is unless those those groups become agile themselves and understand how to work with agile teams, then there will be no joy. There will be no awesomeness. What we we talk about in our executive guide is what does that mean? What does it mean to be an awesome enterprise, not just the discipline agile delivery delivery teams. Uh, So when, when we, you know, we do coaching as well. We don't just write about this stuff. We actually do it. And uh, you know, I worked with a large pizza company in the U.S. as an example last year, and I spent time with their finance group. Um, we got rid of timesheets, by the way. I, I I I told them how they could get rid of timesheets, which was, um, do you think that increased the joy in your organization? Absolutely. 
Nobody likes timesheets, right? That's just one example. Um, working with HR to help them understand the new um, way of incenting and rewarding delivery teams, which is quite different than traditional HR departments. Uh, Enterprise Architecture Group is a new way of working with teams. So, and, and I always say those groups of people um, are, are smart people. Like they're good people doing what they think they need to do. And, and the only issue is they haven't been taught a different way. They, know, they don't know a different way of working with the teams. And they think what they're doing is important to, man, to, to manage the risk in the organization. And all we need to do is get somebody who understands a new way of, work, new way of working for them. And they will actually enjoy their job better themselves. And like the finance team, as an example, they were the recipient of these timesheets. Do you think they like pestering people for timesheets and doing all the accounting? They hate it, right? So going in there and convincing both sides, you don't need to do this anymore. Well, yeah, just made the finance people happier as well. So that's, this is part of the Come on, tell us, tell us how you got rid of the timesheets. I'm sure, oh. <laughs> I'm sure people are interested. I don't know if we've got time, but, but uh, I, can, I can just give you a snippet of, of it, is that... Anybody, if, if anybody knows in their heart that te development teams who fill out timesheets, the data is wrong. Um, a, you know, a, a, a typical person on a team doesn't remember what they did in the morning, let alone what they did on Tuesday. And a lot of times they fill out the timesheet on Friday because their boss has said, fill out your timesheet before you go home. So they pump some numbers in um, that are wrong. And, and, and the nature of teams and the work that you do is very fluid, too. They're doing features and then they're fixing a defect and then they're doing some testing. And these different categories, the accountants want us to, to account for them in different categories, either expenses or capitalizing, whether it's an asset or whether it's operational expense. Um, so the accountants want it down by individual and the type of task that they're doing. And the first thing we have, what I have to say to an organization is to admit that the data is a farce. It is wrong. And, and they, they admit it. They go, yeah, just probably not right. But I need to have something to put on the books, so a balance between you know, uh, uh, CapEx and OpEx. So I said, well, we're going through this ceremony. The data is wrong. Maybe, and, and because the team members work as a team, they don't work as individuals, and their work is so fluid, may, what if you could determine that a particular team spent three quarters of their time in a sprint building new stuff, therefore it's an asset, and 25% of the time fixing stuff or operating stuff. If in aggregate for the team, 75% uh, capitalized and 25% um, expensed, if we could just come up with a number like that, then it becomes one accounting entry for the entire team per sprint, okay? So then the trick then becomes, how do you determine whether, what was the mix of the work that the team did? And to, to, to simplify things, are you familiar with points? You can yeah, have, yeah. Uh, you know, the team delivered 40 points, 30 points of them were features, and 10 points were defects. Now, you can get into the discussion about whether you put points on defects, but setting that aside, uh, there are ways to abstract it and to be able to say 25% of the effort was expensed and 75% capitalized. And my experience working with accountants and auditors is that they are comfortable with this. Uh, a lot of times we assume that they're not, but they are. As long as you have a story to help explain how you came up with the number, um, then they're good with it. Because they realize that the bottom line is that number is probably far more accurate than those timesheets they were doing in the past. So anyway, 
that's right. No, that's no, but I think it's an instructive example, isn't it? It's an instructive example of um, acknowledging these these sources of of angst and where joy is being sucked out of a group of people. Yes, and asking the question, well, how can we achieve the ultimate aim? How can we get the things we value? In the case of the accountants, you know, accurate entries in the book. Uh, in a way that is that is joyful. I mean, it's is it something like that? Yeah, it is. And and so the bottom line to all this is that I always maintain that these people are smart. They just need to understand a new way of working. And at the end of the day, if you go through an agile transformation, I'm not talking about adoption, but I'm I'm talking about a true multi-year change in an organization. In my experience, because I've done this over and over and over again, every single time when I leave, when we leave everybody's happier. The teams are happier. The executives are happy. The middle managers are happier. Um, finance, HR, all those groups are happier. And if they're not, then we're not doing it right. So that's right. why I've become so passionate about what we do because we, I, I actually, you know, go to bed at night, believing that knowing that I've made people's lives collectively, we've made people's lives better. And, and if that's not the case, then we're not doing it right. <laughs> Right. No, yeah, and, and that, and I completely get that, and and somehow that can sound sort of highfalutin, but I, I absolutely believe that there's that we can, we can shift our environments in such a way that happiness increases and productivity increases, and you know business performance, all of it. Right. It's not like we have to choose between yes. them. Uh, in fact, we had a guy, one of our previous guests was the chief happiness officer of Happy Limited, and he, there is no CEO. There's just a CHO. <laughs> And oh yeah, his, his his major metric is uh, percentage of time spent at work experiencing joy. Right, that's one of his right. key business metrics. Uh, yeah, and it can sound and reductive, I, but I think there's something you know fundamental in in, in in asking ourselves these questions. Yeah, so I, I would I would add to that. You know, I take inspiration from people like Richard Sheridan from the book Joy Inc. Right at Menlo. And uh, Jürgen Apello, who talks about happiness as well. Um, the, the difference between what they talk about and what we do is, is I think that you know, they, they talk about the philosophy of it. Um, we talk about actually doing it, like you know, actually going out and working with the different groups and making it tangible. What are some concrete things we can do to create the happiness? So they're, they're not mutually exclusive. The approaches they talk about are complementary to sort of the rubber hits the road guidance that we put into the discipline agile framework. Yeah. Okay. So, so coming back to this idea of the way we interact. So do you see there are particular characteristics of how we need to shift our interactions such that people are experiencing more joy in the workplace, uh, being more effective at, at delivering value to their customers? Yeah, I, well, I, I think that um, part, part of the, co the contributions to ensuring that they are successful on their journey to joy is it goes back to what we said earlier, is that they shouldn't be constrained by a framework or a method. Um, there's a particular framework out there that I won't name <laughs> that we um, sometimes, you know, we'll be at a, a conference and we'll have a Discipline Agile booth and people will come up and... I'll say, hey, so what kind of Agile do you do? And they go, well, we use XYZ framework, sigh. 
right? <laughs> There's a practitioner, right? And, you know, the head goes down and no joy, right? <laughs> so the reason is, is because this particular framework has been dictated from the CIO or CXO. And now it's like, go get trained and go do it because this is our framework now. And then they're constrained. They have to sort of do it this way because that's what the framework says. Rather than allowing people to pursue um, their ways of working that make sense for them. And this is the fundamental difference between us or Discipline Agile and the other frameworks out there. Um, just to give you some examples, like less, it's, it's about feature teams and less requires rather than like there's no component teams, no services teams. Well, I can tell you, tell you that in some situations, we actually see those things as quite useful. But yeah, we prefer feature teams over component teams, but we're not, we're not um, prescriptive about it. Uh, SAFE has some very sort of prescriptive things in the framework. And we're like, yeah, the, you know what? We use some of those ideas as well. But we also want to give the teams the freedom to do things in a different manner if it makes sense for them. So that, and, and, and then if they customize their flavor of Agile, they become more effective, more happier, and better results, right? So it goes back to freeing people from the methods wars again. Um, and I think, so people who understand our philosophy, they find it quite liberating. Let me just tell you a little story about this. Is that, so Barclays, right? Um, I don't know if you've heard of a gentleman named John Smart. John actually wrote the forward, second, second, look at the book. <laughs> John wrote the forward for, for that book, right? And we've known John for, for many years. And John was in charge of the transformation at Barclays, uh, worldwide transformation. Now John, and, and when he, he actually left Barclays and when he left, his title was head of ways of working. So this way of working um, thing is getting, getting around. But uh, so John has now moved over to, moved on to, to Deloitte. But in conversations with John, I said, well, you know, thank you right away for, for using dad as, as a basis for your transformation and adoption and why did you do it and he goes well because I didn't have the political capital to go around the world to say your new thing is scrum or it's safe or it's less because you're gonna have it's a big company and you're gonna have some people by the way say in Singapore um, where that have moved on from scrum and they're now doing lean and delivering and they're super effective. Imagine him going in and saying, stop doing lean and go back to doing retrospectives. You know, stop being so effective and so high performance because we're a scrum <laughs> shop. So you will do stand-ups and you will do retrospectives. Well, they would quit, right? He didn't have the political capital to do that. But what he could say is, that is our framework and it's got scrum, it's got lean, it's got lean startup exploratory stuff, it's got continuous delivery. Pick the ones that make sense for you. But let's land, let's use the terminology from the framework. Um, let's use this thing called an architecture owner, which is something we've added into the framework to ensure that we have good technical behavior across all the teams. So he has a thousand teams. He's got a thousand architecture owners and the CTO feels a little bit better than around the world. There's somebody on every team who is accountable, responsible for ensuring the team exhibits good technical behavior, you know, keeping technical debt down, following guidelines, if code reviews is, is a, is a guideline that those are done, uh, you know, scrum says, well, we're all, we're all responsible for that. And we say, okay, but you're going to have some teams that feel that no, nobody, nobody is strong enough on the team to actually make sure that kind of stuff happens. 
with us, we have this architecture owner role and it's something that the feedback we've gotten over the years, it's a very valuable role. So my point is, is that um, John got the consistency of some important things across the teams, but said, uh, how you actually do it down there, you guys figure that out. But here are my expectations that we follow these things from the framework. What's right. called enabling constraints is what they are. Enabling, yeah, okay. And that's actually where I was going to go because so it sounds to me like there are some things that mark out disciplined agile delivery um, as being disciplined, right? That, that give it this um, this quality of discipline, yes. and, and the enterprise owner sounds like that's a that's a role. Architecture uh, owner. Oh, sorry, architecture owner. What yeah. what are the other key facets as you see it of disciplined agile delivery that gives it this this quality of discipline? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, our conversation, you're just leading me from principle to principle. We have seven principles, right? And one, another principle is enterprise aware. If people say, you know, Mark, how, how dare you call yourself disciplined? Isn't Scrum disciplined? Isn't extreme programming disciplined? How dare you guys call yourself disciplined? Well, they're, they're at a point. It, it takes discipline if you're using Scrum to produce an increment every couple of weeks, ideally shippable. Uh, that takes real, real discipline. It takes discipline in extreme programming to do test-driven development properly, um, to do pair programming properly, and all those kinds of things. So discipline exists in mainstream agile methods without a doubt. But one of our principles, one of the seven principles we have is called enterprise aware. It, ta- it just takes the discipline to an enterprise level. You know, it takes discipline to understand that governance isn't a dirty word. It's, it, it is actually something that you have. People say to me, Mark, we don't need no stinking governance. We, you know, we're agile. Get out of my face. Well, and I say to them, do you have daily stand-up meetings? Well, of course we do. We do scrum. Well, you know what? That's an element of governance. You're doing, that's your planning. Do you have a task board or a sprint burndown chart? Yeah, we have those things. Guess what? That's part of governance. That's status, right? So you have governance, but there are other enterprise aspects of governance. Do you, is it reasonable to expect we have some kind of architectural standards across the organization. It's not a free-for-all. Most people would say, yeah, it probably makes sense to have some degree of consistency of approach. Well, that's enterprise architecture governance. Is there governance in terms of your release management? You know, not everybody is Amazon where developers can put their stuff directly in production. If you're building pacemakers, you know, life-critical systems, well, release management's a little bit different. because the FDA says so, and if you don't do things properly, you can go to jail. <laughs> so, so these are aspects of governance. And, and just like everything in discipline agile, you need to adapt for your context. You, if, you've got, if you've got a simple website that you're updating, then, yeah, you don't need any fancy governance. But if you're in regulatory environments, then your governance is different. Um, so th- these are the parts of discipline is that we just – we recognize that it's not just one team in a room, close the door, do not disturb, nine or less people co-located with the product owner building this stuff every two weeks. That is great, but that's not the environment that most organizations have. It's a lot more complicated than that, um, complex. So right. we, take, we take discipline to the enterprise level is the, the bottom line, yeah? Yeah. Okay, so one of the tensions I often see in organizations uh, is – the, the, road, the long-term roadmap versus the, the delivery teams. So it's very often the delivery teams, maybe they're organized into two-week cycles or, or, or daily release cycles or, or whatever it might be. 
and maybe they've yes. worked into a, an objective and a key result, which is the quarter. And often that's as, that's as far as it goes, right? It's, it's that quarter, um, and sometimes sometimes even less. And yet, and there are others in the organisation who have a roadmap. You know, they might have a two-year or a three-year roadmap, a, a strategic plan um, that they 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 want to have manifested, and maybe they're rewarded on that. What what's your response to when you when you encounter attention like that? Yeah. So. Um... Nothing inconsistent with, with Discipline Agile. We have, uh, in, in, if you look at, and I'm, I'm going beyond the team now, to sort of, I go like this because you have an onion. We have Discipline Agile delivery at the core. That's, the, that's high performance teams. And there's four layers to this onion. The next level out is DevOps. So if you've got teams that are building stuff like that, great. But if you can't get it, if you can only deliver it once a quarter, then you're not particularly agile. This is where good DevOps practices come in. And when we talk about DevOps, we talk about it, again, with regards to enterprises, not just Amazon. Not everybody's an Amazon product company. In a lot of companies, they have release management teams. They have um, support uh, customer call centers. They have data groups. And, and, and so to get something out there quickly and to keep it running, which is the ops part, and monitoring and then recovery and all that kind of stuff, it works differently in the enterprise than what you see in a product company like Amazon. So we talk about that, and we talk about how DevOps is done in a typical enterprise. Then the next layer out is called Discipline Agile IT, D-A-I-T. Now we talk about, okay, how do we get Agile in HR? By the way, we call, maybe you want to rename it to people operations or something. Um, and finance and PMOs. So there's that, that aspect of it. And then at this, the the outermost is discipline agile for the enterprise. Now we're talking about how do you become agile in procurement and marketing and legal and control. So the whole, those four layers of the onion is what we talk about when we talk about a discipline agile enterprise. My point is, is that yes, we, as you start to um, go out into um, and get bigger, then we incorporate things like product management and PMOs and we have guidance around those things. So it depends on your situation. So this pizza company I was working with last year, they they were revamping their loyalty program, as an example. So you have three different loyalty teams, and they've got team leads, which is our term for scrum master on each of the teams, and they've got product owners in each of the teams. But then that was very much tactical. They're, they're, each of those three teams are building stuff uh, for their rewards program, but they had a product manager that the product owners worked for and with and the product manager responsible for more of the road mapping and the multi-quarter rolling wave planning, even multi-year uh, vision for where they wanted to take it. So we have that, you know, all, all these things are um, tools in the toolkits, you know, ingredients in your pantry. And if you need product management, there's guidance there for how to do it properly. Right. That helps. Yeah. No, I, I can see that. I can see that. Uh, what do you see? Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, leadership here. Um, what do you see as being the qualities of the leaders who are most effective in in having this manifest in organisations? Uh, um, oh, of course, supportive, right? And and um, in our executive guide uh, that we wrote, we actually talk about um, how we do transformations. We use a, a plug, you know, to throw out a plug for Jason Little from Lean Change. Um, we use 
uh, Jason's approach, uh, lean change as an organ organizational change management technique and OCM technique to help organizations truly transform to multi-year journey to become agile organizations. And so we, t I, you know, there's a chapter in there, chapter seven, that talks about how we actually do transformations. And then, by the way, as a, as a transformation, you, you get through the hard stuff, it morphs into a continuous improvement, uh, perpetual journey after that. But the, po the point is, is that in, that in the roadmap that we lay out, um, kind of sh sharing our crown jewels, we talk about how we do it. In that roadmap, one of the very first things we want to do is educate the executives. And um, because if they're not on board, you're, you're in for a lot of grief. So we like to do some top down and some bottom up. So let's get those teams, let's roll them out incrementally, get some training. Um, but at the same time, you get that top down education by way, not um, also in the middle. Often a lesson I've learned personally, um, having done this for a long time is that in my early days, I would tend to ignore middle management too long. And those poor people really didn't know what is my new role in this agile organization. This is just still a role for me. So without, helping them early, they can end up being, um, you know, passive aggressive, resisting the change and stuff. So I've learned to bring them into the educational journey as early as possible. But, um, you know, I guess to, to summarize that, they have to get on the same page. We, we typically do an executive workshop and um, that greases the skids. It, it greases the skids for the team. And so that, uh, management executives know what to expect. They understand the new way of working and how they need to stop, you know, get, get them to stop asking for, you know, handcrafted status reports every week, as an example. I say to the executive, you know what, go, if you want status, go see the team because status is on the wall or it's on a monitor, whatever, there's information radiators, right? Um, so that's really important. You need to get the executives on the same page. And the other thing we do too is, is guiding principles to, to for an organization really to change they have to understand that things they used to do in the past that they thought were quote unquote best practices no longer are as an example moving from a project mentality to a product mentality moving from large initiatives which typically fail to small initiatives moving from matrix style project-based staffing of teams temporary teams long-term stable teams aligned to lines of business or value streams. These are all things that are oh, moving from annual budgeting and planning, you know, the annual funding dance that everybody does moving to a continuous rolling wave approach. Uh, and, and again, they're not stupid. They just, nobody's told them that they're to become an agile organization. They need to change their ways. So that's the first thing It's getting them to admit that all the things I just talked about are not good and we want to move from that to this and I what once we get executives saying yeah you know what you're right yeah you know what you're right <laughs> um, we'd like to actually then post that up in a public area so everybody knows that we're moving from project-based approach to, to product-based approach information radiator for everybody to see that just makes everything easier um, and contrib contributes to the joy because people look at that and go oh great we're moving away from this other stuff to a more modern approach that that looks good so you see it principally as an education exercise uh as opposed to a sort of leadership development of certain qualities is that right i yeah i think it's both i, th I think that um 
education is a big part of it, but then it becomes an executive coaching exercise as well. And, and this is, you know, this leads us into another topic is that uh, coaching, um, it, it, just like I think that's, you know, to be quite honest and frank with you, Scrum has is been a double-edged sword. It's been good because, uh, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of Scrum Masters right now <laughs> spreading the gospel about Agile. But it's hurt us on the other side because we've set the bar so low. We've trivialized how simple it is. You know, it's so easy to become a CSM, no, no experience. And, you know, uh, so a CSM that comes out, just got out of school, has never actually been on any kind of project of any type, is now leading a team. Um, things can go uh, uh, really bad. Um, so, so my point is, is that um, sometimes I think coaching, there's, it, there's such a continuum of coaching where some people are scrum masters, they start calling themselves a coach, right? They don't have any certification, they don't have any background, and now they're a coach. And sometimes bad things happen. But at the other end of the continuum, you've got executive coaches and you've got people who can be a good executive coach and they can be a good team coach. And in our engagements, we typically have both. We have somebody like Scott or myself to act as the executive coach and the transformation coach. But then we also have team coaches to help build those high performance, you know, dad teams. So, yes, the coaching is a continuum, right? Yeah, no, no, I get that. And, and and are you sort of seeking to draw out particular qualities when you're doing that coaching? Are you trying to inculcate a certain um, way of being or, or, or perspective, um, you know, in, yeah. the, in that coaching frame? Yeah, you know, we, we have, we have um, an agile for managers one-day course, as an example, that helps um, executives and managers to understand uh, their new way of working and that it's it's much less about quote unquote, unquote managing and much more about leadership so rather than going in and micromanaging and telling the teams what to do they come in and say how are things going and what can i do to help right and so yeah there's there's a just like we talk about agile mindset for teams there's an agile mind, mindset for management as well right okay is there anything else we've we've not touched in terms of you know, the principles of dad? Yeah, uh, being awesome. Oh, cust- delighting customers, right? That's right in the center. That's that's important. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's what it's that. all about, right? <laughs> the mi- minor thing, right? Um, yeah, and and um, it it all goes back to the be awesome and the joy. Is in in the reason that I think you can tell I'm so passionate about this is because I've been so fortunate to go into so many organizations when things really haven't been good. Either um, throughput of the teams is unacceptable, IT spend, right? They're just not getting what's expected. Uh, maybe quality isn't good. Stuff is getting shipped and it's full of bugs and then customers are angry and they yell at the sales reps and the sales reps yell at the engineering managers, the man- engineering managers yell at the team members, um, right? And everybody's unhappy. And then in business is not happy. It's like every time we get IT to do something, it costs three times as much, takes three times as long, and it's never what I expected. How can we get away from that water cooler talk where there's business un, un, uh, customers that are not delighted, not happy, and then you have IT that doesn't, doesn't, they don't get along with the business either. Get to a place where the business absolutely loves their delivery teams. And remember I talked about guiding principles where you have long-term stable teams aligned to business value, value streams, or lines of business. 
And in those lines of business, you're going to have um, product managers or people from the business. And if they have, say, three teams or whatever the teams are aligned to them and they're working with them over a longer period of time, they will bond with, imagine those teams are high-performance teams and they reliably deliver what they said they were going to deliver and it's good quality and they talk with them every day and they bond with them. They start to have beers with them. Um, this is what we see. We see, I, I see business managers that have become fiercely um, protective of the teams that do work for them. They're, 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 they will not let them go. <laughs> it's like, don't touch my teams because they're awesome and they're delighting me. So don't disband them and put them onto a different, different project. Right. This, this is, and, and, and this is at the end of the day, this is delight. This is joy. And, um, you know, I always, you know, I, I, when I start workshops, I, I say, you know, what's the, what's the conversation like for you when you go home and you sit around the dinner table with your family? Is it, uh, when is Friday? It's only Tuesday. I hate my job. You know, um, I don't like my manager. He doesn't like me. Oh, in the business, they're so unreasonable. And uh, all these bugs are coming in. It's not our fault. Uh, how many more years can I, before I can retire or I'm going to find a new job? Is that the conversation? Or is it, I had a great day. We did a demo today. We knocked it out of the park. After the demo, the business gave us a round of applause. I have an awesome team that I'm working with. And I can't wait to go in tomorrow and do it again. Right. And it should be the latter conversation, right? And it's, it's not that hard. Uh, you just you know, pr follow some, some proven ideas. I'm not going to say best practices because there are none. But pick the prick, get out of the methods prison. Pick the practices that make sense for you and your situation. Hopefully you've got management that backs you up and understands that you are best suited, the teams are best suited to customize their way of working for the context within enterprise constraints, because we are working on you know, different types of companies, but give them the freedom to do what they do best. And, and, and they will, those teams will um, excel. You know, in a good self-respecting team, will get better and better and better. And then it becomes a positive feedback cycle between the teams, their management, and the business. Right. That's, like that's that. why I love what I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm so much fun. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Okay, so, so final question that we we like to ask uh, many of our guests. Um, for you, Mark, what does it mean to be human? The Wi-Fi cut. <laughs> for you, Mark, uh, what what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Oh my goodness, <laughs> uh, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, and thanks for thanks for uh, saving that till the end. Um, I, I guess you know it, it's it's fun. Maybe it's just because of where I am, but I'm I, you know I'm in India this week, and and every time I met with some somebody in the hallway, you know they go Namaste. Um, a meeting of equals, we're all humans, and uh, that humility, uh, and you know. Um, I don't know. I haven't got it all figured out. I'm still learning. Um, but I, I think that people, I think what agile means to be human is to realize that there's no one best way. We're all in a journey and to be open to new ideas and don't be constrained by somebody's 
somebody's flavor of agile that says this is my flavor of agile and it is the best and this one's better my my agile is better than your agile which is completely against what we talked about um it's a collection of good ideas some of which make will make sense for you some of which won't uh, but i i guess in in to summarize all that is that one of the frustrations we have is that people often have done a little bit of research and think that they know everything there is to know about Agile, and they're not really open to, you know, reading, it's a big book, and reading new ideas and opening their eyes to new ideas that actually might make them even better. Okay. So. Okay, well, thank you. And <clears throat> for those listening who want to learn more about DAD, then, then where's the best place for them to go? Um, that's also a great question. We uh, are in the process now of consolidating our website properties. We've had three in the past, but the only one URL really they need to know because we're moving everything to be channeled through it is disciplined-agile.com. Disciplined-agile.com is the one place that will get you into learning about what is in DAD, learning about membership and certification, um, and uh, events, webinars, all those kinds of things. We, we've got thousands of members now in our certification, and it's been doubling every year for the last few years. Um, we actually just ran our first face-to-face -face conference in Las Vegas last week. So I would encourage people to get involved in the community. One word on certification, okay, before I was going to say, do, 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 do we want to open that kind of one? This, yeah, that's short, is that um, we did not want to have a certification program because actually Scott and I before we got together to create dad independently criticized some of the certification schemes out there as really not being very credible and the fact that you become can become a master of something without any real experience and taking a very simple test based on a very small body of knowledge um, well like you see these certified scrum masters on LinkedIn and then you look at their CV and it's like janitor scrum oh, yeah. <laughs> oh I know I know <laughs> Don't get me started. Same th the same thing's happening with coaching. I, I ran and nothing against yoga. janitors, by the way, but just this. Yeah, no, no, and nothing against. And so I'm going to say nothing against yoga instructors. But I ran into a yoga instructor who um, took a Scrum Master course, and now she has changed her LinkedIn profile to be an Agile coach. She knows nothing about IT, right? Not a thing. And now she's an Agile coach, and she's bragging about her hourly rate has now doubled. <laughs> so so my point about certification is yes we have a certification plan but it's credible it's hard uh, many most many uh, the, the failure rate of the exam is quite high because it's a serious body of knowledge it requires study people who don't study this they're going to fail the exam um, for the second level the CDAP which is practitioner we require uh, two years of experience with references and we check the references for every person so it's a harder, our, our CDAC, uh, which is coach, certified discipline agile coach, um, you know, five years of coaching experience. Uh, it's, so it's a, it's a credible, we, we believe, just like the, the PMBOK from PMI, regardless of what you think about classic project management, the, the certification plan that they have to become project management professional, PMP, is hard. It's a serious body of knowledge. You require thousands of hours of real world experience. You have to pass a very hard test. So we modeled our certification plan around something like that so that people feel proud that they have it and feel proud to put it on their LinkedIn profile. So we do believe, believe ours is, is a bit different. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, no, an important point because it, it is sort of a a hot topic and uh, and that has become a, a bit farcical in, in some some areas. Of it has. Community. It has. But the, um, not all certification plans are equal, I guess, is the thing. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for your time. Um, I've really appreciated the conversation. I, I, I've learned a bunch. Uh, I hope our listeners do too. Um, yeah, and uh, enjoy the rest of your time in, in Pune. Uh, namaste. Yeah. Namaste. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.